Hey. hey, you're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show, team. My name is Amelia, and today we have a fascinating guest on the show. We have Dr. Patricia, who is an anaesthetist. Oh, nope. I've already messed it up. I swear I can say this word. No, that was correct. Anaesthetist. I said it right? Yeah. Welcome to the show, Dr. Patricia. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Hopefully starting with an easier question to answer than for me to pronounce. What is your job? I am an anaesthetist. That's a medical doctor specialising in anaesthesia or anaesthetics, also called anaesthesiology in some parts of the world. We make operations possible by giving anaesthetics, keeping patients safe during operations and helping them to be comfortable and recover afterwards. We work closely with surgeons and other members of teams in the operating theatre and we're also experts in resuscitating patients in life-threatening situations and in pain relief. That was a lot of things. That's amazing. We're multi-talented people. (laughs) Clearly, clearly. I honestly had never thought about the job more than you help people go to sleep and not feel the pain. Yeah, so I think in the public's imagination, they maybe think of anaesthetist as the person who puts you to sleep at the start. And then because the patient doesn't see the anaesthetist anymore after that, they assume that they just leave. Um, but the anaesthetist stays with the patient throughout the whole operation, monitoring them and looking after them, and then wakes them up at the end. If they're having a general anaesthetic that is completely unconscious for the operation, that's, of course, not the only type of anaesthetic. They can be giving them sedation as well, what some people would describe as a twilight anaesthetic, where they are a little bit sleepy but not completely unconscious or they don't even have to be completely asleep for an operation. People can have surgeries awake. Anyone who's had a caesarean section might have had a needle that's blocked nerves to make them numb enough to do surgery on, but then been awake to meet their baby. So you kind of have the power to choose which part of someone you're going to put to sleep. That's right. So to put the whole person to sleep versus to do, for example, a nerve block and put one limb or one set of uh, nerves to sleep. Do you know how on earth people worked out how to do that? Because it seems like a core piece of like medicine that needs to happen for surgery not to be... Barbaric. Thank you. Beautiful word. Barbaric. Horrendously really, really bad. So the evolution of anesthesia is what let surgery as a field really explode because we were then able to perform surgeries on patients without torturing them uh, and with a much better chance that they would uh, cooperate and also live through their operations and even survive the aftermath, not just the operation itself. Back in the day, like we're talking, you know, when things were barbaric, did people actually just die from the pain? Like, is it possible to die of pain? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I wouldn't say that they died from the pain itself, but it would be very difficult to safely operate on someone who, even if they wanted the operation, was in so much pain that they were essentially unable to cooperate, were moving, had to be held down and the surgeon has a moving field. Um, And also before anaesthetists, there may not have been anyone dedicated to looking after the patient. The the doctor might have just been the surgeon who's concentrating on doing their operation and not looking after things like, is the patient getting enough oxygen? Is the patient bleeding too much? Um, What else can they do for the patient and um, during the operation and in the recovery? So it sort of sounds like in, I don't even know what the word is, but in like the surgical room, it's sounding a lot like you have the duty of care. I would say that the anaesthetist is the doctor who's really concentrating on looking after the uh, patients as a whole in order to let the surgeon concentrate on the specific technical task of doing the surgery. 
Um, so the surgeon is scrubbed in, that is, they've cleaned their hands and they're not allowed to touch things that are not sterile in order to prevent uh, spreading infection um, to the patient. And they're really task-focused and need to concentrate on doing the operation. And the anaesthetist is the one who's watching the patient, watching the surgeon, watching all the monitors and the machines that go beep, looking at every breath and every heartbeat and really responsible for the patient's life during that time. That's actually fantastic news because I'd never really thought about it, but it's really nice to know that there's someone in there who's obviously like highly skilled and is really focused in on making sure the whole person is okay, not just that the surgery goes really well, but there was like some bad side effects somewhere else. Yeah, that's right. So the surgeon needs to be able to concentrate on making sure the operation is being done correctly. And meanwhile, the anaesthetist is worrying about things like, how can I prevent the patient from having a heart attack or having a stroke while they're having this operation? How do I make sure that not only are they unconscious during the operation, but they definitely wake up at the end and get back to their usual self that they were before the operation? So we had someone ages ago on who worked in ICU, and she mentioned anaesthetics as being under the critical care banner. Yeah, alongside emergency physicians, um, intensive care medicine and anaesthesia um, are the kind of the critical care siblings of medical specialties. What does that mean? We look after high acuity patients, which is the pointy end of things where people are in life-threatening situations right at that moment. It's when the things you do second to second or minute to minute uh, can be a matter of life and death, as opposed to uh, looking after more chronic health conditions. It's a longer time frame, for example, um, making sure that someone's looking after their diabetes today so that they don't get a lot of complications of it in 20 years' time. So it's about the sort of time frame. Critical care skills are really looking after the very basics of supporting and reviving a life. So looking at airway, breathing, circulation. So the very fundamentals of human survival, basically. Yeah. And in the and making sure that someone who's very, very unwell or catastrophically injured in the short term can get through that period and then other people uh, are better at looking after their longer-term recovery and care. It sounds awfully stressful. It can be very stressful, yes. <laughs> it doesn't sound like something you go into because you're like, oh, I'm just going to like help some people and it'll be nice with some butterflies and some hearts and stuff. <laughs> uh, it can definitely put up your own heart rate and blood pressure, <laughs> not just the patient's. <laughs> Not the cute little fluttery things. <laughs> hmm. um, but I think it suits my personality because I feel like I'm quite impatient. And so I like the fact that when I give a medication, I can see it work in a minute or two and I don't have to prescribe a medication and get the patient to take it every day for 30 years in order to realise a benefit decades later down the track. You do a thing, something happens to the patient, things are better for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, so I quite like that aspect, the high acuity, the uh, sort of um, it is things are very bad for this patient right now and what I do in these next five minutes really matters. Okay, I've gotten the patient through this acutely life-threatening period and now I can hand over to someone else to take over for the longer-term care. So we do things like advanced life support, for example, when someone arrests or that is, is dead. Uh, hopefully temporarily until we revive them. Oh, that's like beyond critical care, really. Yeah, so the very pointy end. The point of the pointy end, okay. Hmm. Are you able to talk about how anaesthetics actually work? Like what happens in the body for us to be able to go through some really intense kind of surgeries and things? There are lots of different drugs that we use in anaesthetics and some of them we understand what the drugs are and what receptors in the body they target and how they work. But actually, for some of the drugs, including the ones that 
we use to give a general anaesthetic to make people reversibly unconscious for operations, it's not exactly clear how they work. We just know that they do and enough people have had them over the years without harm that they've continued to be used. So that may surprise some of your listeners that some of the drugs that we use day in and day out and rely on to do one of the very key parts of our job, we don't necessarily know the molecular mechanism why giving this drug makes you unconscious and then you become conscious again later. How are we going to reassure listeners that it's all good? I guess I guess there's statistical significance, right? It's been working for a long time. So uh, back in sort of the um, t- maybe the growing up years of anesthesia, people were experimenting essentially on themselves, on each other, on patients, and thankfully now enough thousands and thousands and thousands of anaesthetics have been given and operations done that we're fairly assured of their safety. Um, but in the old days, in terms of your question uh, earlier about how do people discover that you can do that, one dude decided to inject cocaine into the spinal column, the spinal fluid of his friend, found that it made him numb. And there you have it, a new anaesthetic was invented. Wow, back in the rogue old days. Yeah, so because of the lack of, uh, well, sorry, the maybe the immaturity of medical ethics conventions uh, and the it was a sort of a wild west of maverick doctors trying things out, um, thanks to them and uh, their work and potentially sacrifices, um, we have some of the methods and medicines that we're able to safely use today. I think it's so easy to look at modern medicine, which just has this most, like, for the most part, a really pristine kind of image. It's really under control. Everything is so, like, thoroughly tested to forget that, you know, people, it's not that long ago, like, people were writing books back in the days when people were also just giving things a go and seeing what happens. Medicine does have its darker side as well um, in terms of being developed and things being discovered or honed through methods that certainly wouldn't pass any ethical board or regulator today. So, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We don't need to go there. It's okay. <laughs> Listeners will will think about putting together an episode on that another time. Um, we'll just talk about people injecting cocaine into their mates. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> True story. <laughs> imagine being the first person. Like, imagine having the guts to do that to someone else and be like, I'm pretty sure this won't kill you, unless you just, like, had had a tiff with him or something. No, I think they were friends, like, genuinely. <laughs> Have you ever, like, is it a thing that anaesthetics don't always work on everybody? Different people might require different doses of anaesthetics and sometimes a method can fail or not work perfectly. So, for example, if I'm performing a nerve block on someone, um, it is possible for the nerve block to either not work at all if I've done it incorrectly despite using a correct technique or for it to work imperfectly and they get some pain relief from it but it's not completely numb and they still need to end up going off to sleep for their operation. So that can happen uh, but it's not a situation of this drug completely doesn't work on you unexpectedly. Yeah, okay. It sounds like it's more likely to be a result of all human bodies are slightly different and people react to things differently. Yeah, and some people might be allergic to a particular drug, which means that we need to avoid using that for that person. Yeah, even though that might be like the ideal one for that situation normally. Yeah. What does an average day at work for you look like? Typically, a day shift will be 10 hours and that can be 
the whole day in the operating theatre, maybe working with the same surgeon doing the same type of surgery or split into a morning or and afternoon operating list. And that's the bulk of the work. Sometimes we also do pain ward rounds where we will spend a couple of hours going around the hospital to see the patients who are under our care for pain relief and management, either because they've had surgery and it is expected that they'll have pain and we're trying to make them as comfortable as possible getting through that period, or they've been referred to us because they've got pain from an injury or an some other illness and they've been referred to us by another medical team. We also provide other services in the hospital, for example, performing uh, epidurals for pain relief for women in labour on the birth suite. And we also go to emergency uh, codes um, where our resuscitation skills might be required. Oh, right. So if if something extreme is happening in emergency, they might call on you. Yeah. So if someone uh, in the emergency department has just had a cardiac arrest, then a code might get called out of the hospital and an anaesthetist uh, or one of the anaesthetic staff will usually be rostered to respond to those codes. That can happen on the ward as well, just with other patients who've been admitted to the hospital or even with visitors in the car park before they've made it into the hospital. Um, we might also be asked to uh, perform an emergency intubation or to uh, go to someone who's having difficulty breathing or needs a breathing tube and a ventilator for some reason because we are the airway experts. So our emergency physician colleagues or our intensive care uh, physician colleagues might give us a call to um, help them out with one of the patients in their departments. Yeah, right. So you could be like pootling, doing some board rounds and making sure everyone's sort of feeling relatively comfortable and then suddenly a code goes off and you've got to like scamper across and save someone's life. Yes. And so we're usually dressed in scrubs and comfortable shoes that you can travel quickly from the hospital in. Yes. I imagine there's a, some level of like fitness and ability to stay calm in less than ideal circumstances that's quite important to this job. You do often have to juggle competing priorities when dealing with sick patients. Are you able to talk us through, from your perspective, what happens when you take a patient through surgery? Like um, for, for most of us, we've only been the patient, so we get sort of like rolled somewhere and then you count backwards from 10 and you're asleep. And then suddenly you're awake somewhere else. Like what happens from your perspective? So we will hopefully have some advance notice about who our patient is and what operation they're having. We'll check with the surgeon whether they have any particular needs or preferences in terms of the anaesthetic and anything else that will help us to look after the patient. We'll look up the patient's file and talk to the patient to find out their medical history, think of a plan in terms of the best way to give them an anaesthetic and the best way to keep them safe and get their informed consent, um, taking into account their preferences. And then let's say we're giving a general anaesthetic and we're going to put the patient completely to sleep for the whole operation, then we will do that and then stay during the anaesthetic and the operation with all the watching all the monitors and the patient and the surgeon and then at, as the surgeon's finishing the operation we start turning off the anaesthetics and things that are keeping the patient asleep make sure that we've given them enough pain relief that we think that they're going to need in order to be comfortable when they get to the recovery room and the in the hours afterwards um, make sure that we've prescribed enough pain relief for them to use in the next in the following few days, and then wake them up and uh, take them to the recovery room. Um, some patients who are too unwell to actually wake up um, and take to the recovery room, we might end up keeping them asleep. Um, with a breathing tube and on a ventilator with life support and taking them to the intensive care unit um, to continue to be looked after there if they're very, very unwell. If the patient is not having a general anaesthetic, so for example, 
uh, someone who is having a spinal injection to give them numbness to have a caesarean section, uh, then we're there with the patient and chatting with them throughout the whole operation and they're aware of everything. We test the the block, the numbness, after we've put in the injection to make sure that it's working before the operation starts. And we're, touch, we're chatting to the patient the whole time. So they are awake and able to tell us if anything is uncomfortable or if they're feeling anything during the operation. If everything goes well, then we have a nice, uh, calm time uh, if everything goes to plan, but we are always there to respond immediately in case things don't go to plan. If there's a lot of bleeding, if it turns out that the surgeon uh, during the operation finds something unexpected, then we are there to help and keep looking after the patient. So many skills, so many. Has Have you ever seen a situation where someone's refused anaesthetics? Yes. So we don't do anything to patients without their informed consent um, unless it's an emergency situation and they're not able to consent, for example, because they've got a uh, head injury and they're actually not even able to have that chat with us. Um, We will try and get consent from their next of kin if that person is known and available, but otherwise we might just do what we think needs to be done in the emergency situation to save their life. Outside of those situations, it's really up to the patient. If they are of sound mind and and it's not an emergency, there's time um, and they're able to talk to us and tell us what they want and to say yes or no, we absolutely do respect their decision. And sometimes a patient will actually say, well, Now that you've told me all the risks of the anaesthetic and the surgery, I actually don't want it. I'm going to take my chances with this cancer or whatever the condition is that they're having the operation on because they'd rather live with their condition even if if the condition might eventually kill them uh, than take on the risks and side effects of the treatment. It's kind of amazing that people do get enough information to be able to make that choice. Like... Obviously, that would be incredibly hard and it could be really frustrating as a medical person being like, but we could fix this potentially. But for me, I think it's it's really lovely that people do have some level of choice, but they also get given good information to make decisions with. Yeah, ideally, um, when time permitting, they will, they will have had a full and frank discussion with their surgeon in clinic well ahead of the time of the surgery so that you don't get to the day of the surgery with somebody who's actually not got all the information or isn't confident that they want to proceed. Hopefully by the time I'm meeting them on the day of the surgery or the day before the surgery, um, if I'm having a chat in advance, they they don't have any more questions about it and uh, are quite sure that they want to go ahead. Historically, medicine has been more paternalistic but modern medicine definitely emphasizes patient autonomy (laughs) which is good there's progress yay better late than never I kind of like the idea of you like being able to give someone an epidural or something or whatever it is for c-sections and then being able to have a chat with them like just being a nosy person like if that was happening to me I was the one on the receiving end I would just that'd be so cool being able to chat with you whilst you're doing your job. I think that'd be really interesting. (laughs) And I I do feel like we sort of have a superpower to be able to have control over life and death and almost feel like we're pulling a patient back from the brink of death sometimes and also the power to be able to give them a period that is pain-free, which would otherwise be very painful or traumatic. So I like having those skills. Oh, it's amazing. Like, yeah, being able to know that if you didn't do your job, if you weren't there, if the medical system was different, slightly crazy, like that person would be in huge amounts of pain and you can stop that. Like that's a lot of power. Hmm. I like to think so. (laughs) (laughs) How do we stop you from, you know, maybe getting a little bit too eager 
too full of the power. <laughs> I think um, different medical specialties all vary in terms of their internal culture. And I quite like the culture of anaesthetics. Most people are very uh, friendly and collegiate and down to earth. And there's not as much ego, I think, in anaesthetics compared to some other specialties. I, yeah, I, I really like the culture within anaesthesia in terms of people really looking after not just the patients, but also our colleagues as well. That's so important. And especially when you're working in situations where your adrenaline is going to be really high and it could be like it sounds like it could be relatively routine and then very suddenly things are not okay and I think you you need to have support otherwise your brain would melt. Yeah I think that's right things can change very quickly um, in critical care and it's also teamwork so there are the technical skills involved like how good are you at doing an injection, a nerve block, inserting an intravenous uh, cannula for someone, um, those kinds of how good are you at putting in a breathing tube, those skills. But then there are also the non-technical skills as well, like communication, teamwork, taking into account human factors. And we're almost never alone. We're almost never single-handedly saving a life. It's always going to be us and the team around us. And being being able to embrace that team. Well, I mean, that's what makes hospitals work, right? Yeah, I would say applicable to a lot of things. I definitely feel that um, as an anaesthetist, I wouldn't be able to do my job at all without my anaesthetic nurse, without collaborating with the surgeons, the other, the surgical nurses, the technicians, everyone else in the operating theatre or in the hospital. And there's a lot of moving parts involved. And the anaesthetist is a sort of leader in the operating theatre in terms of coordinating everyone else. So, for example, when a the surgeon needs to concentrate on stopping this life-threatening bleeding, um, the anaesthetist is looking after the, the whole of the patient and also uh, delegating tasks to the other team members um, in order to save that patient's life. I was going to ask what skills you need to do your job. I feel like you've already kind of touched on a lot of them. But is there any other ones that you'd like to bring up? I think we have covered so the, the technical skills, the non-technical skills, um, including leadership and communication and teamwork um, and the uh, the prioritising of, sorry, the juggling of different competing priorities at the same time. I think the anaesthetist, even though a lot of the time they, the patient is asleep, does still require a good bedside manner because you'd like for the last person talking to you as you going off to sleep for your operation to hopefully be reassuring that they're going to keep you safe and look after you. Yes, you do not want a last minute moment of panic like, oh my goodness, this person. Yeah, I think you, I think as you're about to have your operation, um, you would like your anaesthetist to reassure you that you're in good hands. So that you can go to sleep and let things that need to happen happen Hmm. how have you ended up in this job because it's sort of sounding like it's pretty good for who you are but like what was your path from high school to where you are now so I graduated high school and did undergraduate medical course which was six years um Other undergraduate medical courses might be five years. Graduate entry medical school is typically four years. And then after I graduated from medical school, I started work in the public health system. Uh, The first year I did internship where all newly graduated uh, doctors uh, rotate through a variety of medical specialties in order to sample and experience the different specialties. The following years after that are residency and people can do a number of different years as a resident, also rotating through different specialties to get more experience, but they tend to target what rotations they request from the hospital based on what specialty they think that they would like to pursue. And then I applied to get onto the anaesthetic training program. And then I've finished the anaesthetic training program. And now I'm a fully qualified specialist anaesthetist, still working in the public hospital. 
Were there any other kinds of medicine that you were like, ooh, maybe? I think it's always been anesthesia for me from partway through medical school in terms of being interested in the physiology, pharmacology, the technical skills, getting to use my hands. Um, it had a good balance for me of the thinking side of things um, as well as the doing side of things. And I also really was attracted to the culture within anaesthesia compared to some of the other specialties which didn't fit my personality as well. It doesn't sound like, for example, you would get as much satisfaction out of being a GP. I think GPs have a very difficult job that doesn't suit me. General practice or primary care, they're not critical care. They're kind of the other end in terms of timescales. They're looking after pretty much everything about the patient, but on the less urgent timescale. And I am now funneled quite far down my specialty. I don't know nearly as much about as many things as a general practitioner would. I more know a lot about a very few things that are in my area. What did you want to do when you were like in school? Like was this, was medicine always the plan or did you have like moments where you secretly wanted to be like a pilot or a deep sea diver or something else? No. So when I was in primary school. I really enjoyed writing fiction uh, and aspired to be an author. And then English was one of my favourite subjects alongside science. And so science was the other contender. Um, then in high school, the sort of reality of being a career scientist, I thought probably more suited to applied sciences, something in healthcare, for example, compared to being on sort of the forefront of making new scientific discoveries as a career scientist. And I also was looking for, uh, because I'm quite risk averse, I was looking for something with a bit more job security, not dependent on applying for grants, wanted to rock up to work, do, do work and get paid. And I also wanted to do something that, so that kind of uh, lowered the chances of being an author being suitable as well in terms of job security. <laughs> um, and then I, maybe naively, um, without having done much research into it, thought that medicine, that seems like a quite a noble career where I get to use science and help people and it seems like it has quite good job security. So that's how I sort of ended up on that path. Um, I'm quite lucky that I happened to that it happened to suit me. Now I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, but at the time, I was probably quite naive when I first went into it. Um, so I'm I'm glad that it worked out in the end. Yeah, I feel like it's it's what it's a big commitment. Like that is a lot of study to commit to without kind of being able to sample the job. Mm, yeah. So I love it and can't imagine doing anything else but I think anyone who's thinking about a career in medicine probably should go in with their eyes open and not as naively as I did um, and think about the fact that it is many long years of study so four five or six years of medical school they may or may not do a, a degree before medicine um, then having the pre-vocational years in public hospitals as an intern and a resident, uh, possibly an unaccredited registrar that is a, a more senior uh, doctor who hasn't yet gotten onto a training program, then several years on a specialty training program, and then finally qualifying as a specialist at the other end. Uh, this is my first year working as a fully qualified specialist, and I've been, and it's been ten years since. Uh, graduation from uni and people should be aware as well of the fact that it does involve a lot of shift work some specialties more than others um, long hours and can be quite taxing in terms of work-life balance and your relationships with your partner family friends and can be stressful some people do burn out 
Um, some people do end up deciding that medicine is not for them. And uh, you may, it, it's quite topical currently. Um, there are a couple of uh, public health services being sued in class action lawsuits by junior doctors for all the unrostered, unpaid overtime that they've done and not been paid for. And there's also a book out at the moment, Emotional Female, by Yumiko Kadota, detailing how uh, she was used and abused and there were some horrendous things that happened to her as a junior doctor, as someone uh, trying to train as a surgeon who, through bullying and harassment, ended up having a crisis and leaving her job. So I think that people who are thinking about a career in medicine, yes, it's a very noble profession and and it's very powerful uh, to get to develop skills to help people, um, skills that are very useful and that can make a lot of difference to people's lives. Um, but it's important to go into it knowing that it's not all plain sailing. It can be very difficult at times. You have to have some passion for it and find some meaning in it to be able to get through those difficult times to feel like what you're doing has purpose um, and don't go into it just for the prestige or money or any other uh, external motivations that might not, uh, might not keep you motivated through the hard times. I think they're all really good points. And for anyone who is considering a career in medicine, I really would recommend talking to other people. Like, obviously, this podcast is a really good start. But if you can find doctors or surgeons or anything in your network that you can have a chat to, and don't be just like, hey, can you tell me a bit about your job? And they tell you like the hearts and shiny things about it. Just like keep pushing just a little bit harder to actually see if you can get like what is their day actually like what is the culture because culture is super important what is the culture like and try and get that from a range of people before you sign up to a very expensive very long degree yes there is a lot of cost involved in terms of student debt and it doesn't stop there because you then go on to take thousands and thousands of dollars in uh, postgraduate courses and training fees to specialty colleges if you get onto a training program and then it costs thousands of dollars to take exams in order to get qualified as well. Yeah, it's not as simple as waking up one day in your tan and being like, I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to save lives. And then you just become a doctor. Like it turns out it's way more complicated becoming a doctor. You don't just study doctoring. Yeah, I would say it's not it's not just difficult to get into in terms of the selection process and then once you're in, you're, everything's great. Um, it can be very taxing in terms of your mental and physical health and you need to have supports around you to be able to get you through those hard days or weeks or months, for example, when you're studying for your specialty exams or when you just couldn't save that patient even though you really did everything, you thought you did everything. And on a slightly lighter note, um, we, were, we were thinking the other day, like there's, there's a lot of jobs where you can work from home and we're like, anaesthetists cannot work from home. That's right. Most of our job is very hands-on. There uh, other specialties where more of the job could potentially be done from home, for example, a radiologist reporting on uh, x-rays and other medical imaging um, potentially could uh, do that on a sufficiently powerful computer setup at home. People who do telehealth clinics, for example, but uh, at the moment, until technology gets more advanced, or maybe until we're all replaced by robots, who knows, um, anaesthetists really do have to be there in person with their patients and with the surgeon. I feel like on the, the thought experiment of which jobs will get turned into robots first, I feel like anaesthetists, that's not going to be the first. There's way too much uh, human sensitivity, which is needed in there. I think that my job is less threatened by the coming robot revolution compared to some others. 
um, technology is very transformative, but hopefully we're incorporating it and, and meeting it with enthusiasm and using it to help us better look after patients rather than fearing um, losing our jobs to technology. I think uh, we might get to a stage where we can maybe even run a program that does a preset type of anaesthetic, gives uh, the right doses of drugs for that patient and then monitors them. And as long as nothing unexpected happens and nothing goes wrong, maybe the algorithm will be able to get an, a patient through an operation in the future. But when things start going wrong, I think you're still always going to need the human anaesthetist to step in and make decisions. Yeah, you still want a person in that room. Yeah. So we've spoken about, well, we glossily brushed over some of the challenges. What is your favourite part of this job? What helps you get up and keep going through a 10-hour shift? Because that's not short. I think it's a really cool job. We work pretty hard to develop these skills and accumulate this knowledge and then we get to use it to help people. And every day is a new set of quite intellectually stimulating challenges in terms of doing helping surgeons to do different kinds of surgeries on patients who have different um, needs, have different medical conditions that, that alter what techniques we might be able to use. And I think it's what gets me excited and up in the morning is just the idea that I have these superpowers of resuscitation, of being able to have control over consciousness and life and death and pain. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I agree. I suspect our listeners are going to agree too. We've already touched on a bunch of the advice that you would give to a younger, possibly you. Is there anything else, like whether it's for someone who's maybe for a student in uni who's going through medical school and is like, eh, any advice for them? I think just talk to and possibly shadow um, people from different specialties to get an idea, if you're already within medicine, of what specialty appeals to you. Um, and for people who, before they've even gotten into medicine and they're considering it, I think the above advice still applies. Um, just get as many perspectives as possible so that you have an idea not just of the rosy side of things but also the darker side of things and think about what trade-offs you're happy to make and what 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 are your what path suits your particular strengths and weaknesses and potentially like what kind of lifestyle you want to have as well like if you want to be able to stay at home with your kids four days a week or all those sorts of things too, which might seem a bit not so obvious when you're 22, but when you hit 32, you suddenly you need to think about these things too. Yeah, I think it is very important to consider not just what uh, is what the, what subject matter interests you uh, or what kind of work interests you or that you're good at, but also what kind of lifestyle people working in your potential future job uh, lead and what their work-life balance is, um, the hours that they work. Maybe you decide actually shift work is very punishing on your body and you're not going to choose one of the specialties that feature le- for, that heavily features shift work, even though they would be interesting to you. Or you, would, you might decide, I don't want to work uh, 60 hours a week every week and be woken up at all hours of the night doing on-call um, so I'm going to choose a different path from that, even though that might be higher pain. There are important trade-offs to make. And I, th- I think important things to consciously think about as well and not just sort of like let it happen to you. And also the lifestyle can be quite different between working in the public health system, having a job at a public hospital and getting paid um, by them um, compared to working in private where you might get a bit more choice in terms of what work you do and when you work, but there's also less job security and benef- there's not benefits like paid leave. Um, so uh, having a talk to people who work in private as well as people who work in public um, is important to get an idea of the different um, facets. Yes, don't just find one person in your network who says that they're a doctor 
you're going to need to dig a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, and ask them about the downsides as well and the times when they're, when it's been stressful and not just when it's all rainbows and lollipops. And I'm also going to say don't necessarily just judge any profession on what you see in the media because that's always going to be skewed. Oh, absolutely. Like if, um, if people go into medicine thinking that it's going to be like house or Grey's Anatomy, um, they'll be in for a rude shock when they actually start work. Speaking of which, is there any myths about anaesthetics or anything that you would like to take this opportunity to bust? I think we've already mentioned um, the fact that the anaesthetist doesn't just put you to sleep at the start and then leave, um, that they're actually looking after you for the whole operation. I think that's the thing that I've had multiple patients uh, react in surprise to when I tell them that. They're like, what, you're still here? Hmm. Although I kind of had thought that at the beginning of a surgery or something, you just had like a shot of an anaesthetic, like a, whether it was a gas or whatever, and that was what sort of carried you through. It didn't occur to me that it was kind of on tap and it was continuously like given to you. Yeah, so we can keep people, we can get people to sleep and keep people asleep with anaesthetics that they breathe in as a gas or that gets injected into um, the vein. Um, but the first dose that you get is just to get you off to sleep and then we need to keep you asleep. So that's what we're doing during the operation. And then at the end, we turn all that off and stop giving it to you so that you will wake up. Makes a lot more sense, your version than mine. Yeah, I think. I joke that a, a trained monkey can get you off to sleep, but uh, you need an anaesthetist to make sure that you wake up at the right time, not during the operation and not never. Yeah, but you definitely do wake up, yes. <laughs> hmm. right, so I'll take that uh, that advantage over the trained monkey. I think they're too busy writing Shakespeare, aren't they? Oh, yes. Is there anything else we haven't covered or touched on that you would like to share? I think... This is not actually related to anaesthetics, but we're con- a lot of the time we're concerned with consciousness and stopping it and then restarting it. And I find it fascinating to think about the fact that as humans, we actually don't understand consciousness and what makes people or other animals conscious or not conscious. And when you interrupt someone's continuity of consciousness, for example, when they fall asleep naturally or when we give them a general anaesthetic, is the person who then wakes up later the same person as the one who went off to sleep? Do you need continuity of consciousness to say that's the same person? And when they're unconscious, they have no conscious experience, they're not forming memories, is a version of you that's missing some memories the same person as a version of you that has all of the memories? That's just a little kind of science fiction thought experiment that I find very interesting, even though it is not actually that related to my job. Why did you wait to 50 minutes in to drop that one on me? Like, that's cruel. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole episode right there. (laughs) I think possibly a neuroscientist might have more to say on the issue of consciousness than an anaesthetist. Um, We give you drugs that take away your consciousness temporarily, um, we don't necessarily know which of our hypotheses about how they work is actually correct or if any of them are. Great, great. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you went to medical school for how long and you still don't know? (laughs) I would say it's not that I don't know, it's that it is not known. There's a difference. The human race does not know. Yeah. Well, they say that the last person to know everything that humans knew was Leonardo da Vinci because since then the body of knowledge that belongs to the human race is just so large that it can't possibly be contained by any one person. Oh, we can't even analyse all the data we've got now. Mm. Right. So does the person who goes to sleep, are they the same person who wakes up? I reckon we should leave that to our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) To be sitting there, I don't know what you're all doing. Like some of you will have been prepping dinner. Some of you will have been driving somewhere. Some of you will have been, I don't know, knitting. And you're just sitting there going, wow, she threw that one in at the end. What am I going to do with myself now? I don't want to go to sleep. (laughs) So here's another one for you. So we think that 
we think that it's more ethical to torture someone by cutting open their belly and uh, cutting out an organ, say an appendix, and then sewing them back up. We think it's more ethical to do that if they don't experience it uh, if they and don't remember it than if they do. That's why we give them an anaesthetic when they need an appendicectomy because we think that it's kinder that they don't feel pain and get traumatised by that. What about, what are the what are the ethics of having someone experience that and then taking away their memory of it? So, for example, a sci-fi show like um, Dollhouse, which was on a couple of years ago now, where um, people would have some horrific experiences, but then their memories would be wiped and then they wouldn't remember, they wouldn't have PTSD because they had no memory of that those bad things happening to them. So was it better to take away their memories so that they don't, they're not tra- permanently traumatised by it, or would it be better to let them remember it so that they know what's happened to them and they're not being deceived and have got missing time? And understand why they react like the way they do but then also but if they never make that memory in the first place you haven't really taken it away or have you because mm. <laughs> like like obviously there's sinister ways that this could be done right like um and science fiction is full of particularly like a woman who has a baby and then um or she's pregnant and then she goes under anesthetic and they they take away the baby and they try and wipe her mind of the fact that it ever happened, but obviously the body still remembers and like it screws with people's brains. Bearing in mind we're talking about science fiction, it's okay. Yeah, so to to be to make it completely removed from actual real world medicine, in in this show Dollhouse, um, people sign up to have their bodies or their, their to they sign up to have their brains reprogrammed and have other personalities put into them um, and then to have their and to go on missions and essentially be slaves for however long their contract goes for. So they're consenting to this when they sign up and then at the end of their contract they get their memories wiped and they get their body back and their original personality and memories reinserted into that body. They don't remember anything that's happened during the term of the contract, any of the things that they've done or any of the things that have been done to them and so then there's a lot of philosophical questions into that go into that um uh is that person still the same person who signed up at the start are they a different person because actually they've experienced a lot of life between the start and end of their contract and is it more ethical to let them remember all the horrible things that happened essentially while they were enslaved or is it kinder that they don't remember and then you've got like the concept of emotional pain where people who say someone who's had like their child die or whatever and they're obviously in a huge amount of psychological pain and someone says like if you could erase that would you and it's like most people I understand would say no because like that pain is part of the memory Mm, yeah, so that's very interesting as well. And that's getting into, I think, um, Black Mirror on Netflix deals with a lot of those kinds of philosophical questions, as does science fiction in general. And whilst people might be, you're just an anaesthetist, not not like just, but you're an anaesthetist, like focus on the, the chemistry, but obviously the chemistry is a bit like, yeah. but I'm kind of glad that you're sitting there thinking about morals and ethics. And you're not just taking this as, yes, I have all the power. You're like, hmm, is this person the same person? <laughs> I, I personally find it very interesting from a philosophical, ethical point of view, and I'm a big science fiction fan because sci-fi deals with a lot of these questions. Like I watch Westworld and see that the hosts, um, oh, I better not spoil the show for people who haven't seen it. But anyway, it can it does ask a lot of questions about consciousness and memory and what is a person for example can robots gain consciousness and become non-human persons and then what is their moral status do they deserve rights like humans do if they are then a conscious sentient person anyway um yeah so I think it's very interesting to me personally and I think uh, it's quite important um 
that we remember sort of that we incorporate all the philosophical influences into medical ethics that it's not just we have the power to do these things we also think about should we what is ethical in our de- in our clinical practice what should we offer to patients um uh f- um, and this is not limited to anesthesia, but also to, but um, will feature in other specialties as well. Where whether people, whether as clinicians, we're obliged to offer treatments that we think are futile or even uh, net harmful to patients. Whether uh, making sure that we're not coercing pa- patients to undergo treatments that they actually don't want or that don't serve their values and preferences. And the the importance of that is you're not just thinking about medicine from a purely physical perspective of you're like, you've got a problem that you're going to fix. It's understanding that people are this sort of holistic, incredibly complicated thing that we also need things like philosophy to understand how best to approach situations that involve people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to be able to... Uh, respect patients' values and preferences and understand when they say, well, actually, I choose to have the disease rather than to take on all of the risks and side effects of the treatment and not to uh, think negatively of them, even if you disagree. And that's the bit that I imagine takes a bit of maturity. Yeah, um, I think it is important for medical schools to cover all the ethics side of things, communication, breaking bad news, and not just how do you do this procedure or what are the symptoms of this disease. Definitely. Okay, well, with that that lovely bombshell dropped right at the end, I'm now going to have to find a med- medical ethicist. Although I was talking to someone about this the other day, we were talking about like the ethics of genome barcoding and stuff. Do you have... To totally switch tracks, do you have a shout out or a virtual high five for anyone or like an organisation that you think is doing an awesome job? Um, I hadn't uh, thought of anyone in advance, um, but I will just say that um, I'm currently reading the book Emotional Female by a colleague and friend, Yumiko Kadota, which is a very sobering look into the darker side of being a trainee surgeon and would recommend that even if it uh, is looking a bit more at the downside of the world of medicine. Um, I think uh, it does provide some valuable insight into realistically what it can be like. And hopefully it's through the communication of that sort of content that the system changes exactly to improve things for the people working in the healthcare system as well as ultimately the patients that we're all looking after because as a patient I want a healthy doctor well I want a healthy doctor I also want a happy doctor (laughs) yeah I think the the patients in the community are best served by healthcare workers who have mastery of their particular specialty and subject matter have autonomy over how they do their job they can do it the way that they think is best um, and also find purpose and meaning and job satisfaction in their work and are happy and healthy themselves because that's more conducive to putting in a better performance for our patients 100 percent. i'm also going to add in a shout out to all the Uh, science fiction authors out there who have clearly provided you with plenty of um, mental stimulation and sort of things to think about. Yeah, I would say watch Black Mirror on Netflix and um, Westworld on HBO and uh, Dollhouse. I'm not sure where that's showing anymore, if anywhere, Um, but lots of fodder for thought experiments and thinking about consciousness, personhood, philosophy ethics and we'll see if we can find any kind of related episodes um i I know there's been some other podcasts that have talked about black boxes where we're where we don't know what happens during a period of time and uh anesthetics is obviously one of them thank you so much for coming on the show dr patricia this has been well it started off like fairly normal and it got pretty twisty so that's that's a great episode (laughs) thank you 
Thanks for having me, Amelia. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks. Thanks.